Okay, well, thank you very much for coming. Uh, I'm Ian Black. I'm the visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Centre here at LSE. Uh, what we're going to do is hear from Jessica Watkins for about 20-odd uh, minutes. We, the main thing after that is for, uh, for you, the audience, to ask questions. So just going through the notes here, I, please silence your, put your phones on silent. The talk is being recorded to go up on the, on the website. Um, Jessica is research officer at the Middle East Center and she's currently working on a, a DFID funded project looking at regional drivers of conflict in Iraq and Syria. That project ties in with Jessica's previous research at the RAND Corporation into Iraqi and regional security issues. Uh, her PhD at the Department of War Studies at King's College London, just across the road, was on policing and dispute management uh, in Jordan. Um, the one other thing I need to tell you is that uh, Rosa there will be taking pictures for promotional purposes. If you have any problems with that, if anybody is interested in surveying you, then just let us know uh, so that they're not featured. If you want to tweet about the event, the, uh, it's, the hashtag is... LSE Arab Media, um, and that is it. Jessica, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, everyone. Um, so uh, this paper is part of the LSE's conflict research program. Uh, it's funded by DFID. And one aspect of the uh, program is to bring out some of the regional drivers of conflict in Syria and Iraq over the past decade. So the paper um, looks at the role that pan-Arab satellite news channels may have played in exacerbating uh, conflict, an explicitly intersectarian conflict between Sunni and Shia in both countries um, between 2011 and 2017 is the uh, time I'm looking at. So the paper focuses on three of the most popular Arab satellite news providers, uh, the Qatari-based Al Jazeera Arabic, uh, Dubai-based Al Arabiya, and the Lebanon-based Al Mayadeen. Um, it doesn't look at Al Jazeera English, uh, which has quite a different editorial line, um, except occasionally to cross-reference some of the findings. So, and the study bases the, the, um, the findings on qu close qualitative analysis of five um, of se seminal events of violence between Sunni and Shia in Iraq and, um, and Syria between 2013 and 2017, and based on that coverage, it finds that each of the channels can be uh, considered guilty to a greater or lesser extent of promoting violence in certain defined circumstances. But by and large, promotion of sectarian violence hasn't been done through use of abusive language or outright calls to violence, but through a range of less conspicuous linguistic and editorial, editorial devices or tropes um, that I'll highlight. So for, let's say, the next 15 to 20 minutes, um, I don't want to repeat the content of the paper because I'm hoping that you will read it, um, but I'm just going to uh, tell you why I think the study matters, um, what some of the main findings are, and uh, what the policy implications are. So uh, why does it matter? Um, the paper addresses a couple of core issues that I think have been largely sidelined up until now. So uh, firstly, it's no revelation that funding for pan-Arab news media is dominated by political elites. Al Jazeera Arabic is funded by the Emir of Qatar. Al Arabiya is co-owned co by the Saudi government along with a Middle East Broadcasting um, Center. And the funding for Al Mayadeen has never been publicly disclosed, but its position is very clearly pro-Iran, pro-Hezbollah, and its director has established links with Tehran. Um, because the elites that sponsor these channels um, have been heavily invested in the outcomes of the Arab uprisings. It's, it's really, there's no expectation of neutrality in covering uh, those conflicts. But the question here is, has political partisanship necessarily amounted to promoting sectarian violence? Um, the second point is that one of the dominant explanations of regional politics associated with the Arab uprisings is that Middle Eastern political elites, including those in Saudi and Qatar and um, Iran, have been pursuing geopolitical agendas by using sect to aggravate conflicts, um, domestic conflicts in Syria, Iraq, but also Bahrain and Yemen, and over the longer t term in Lebanon. But considering how often that claim is made, there's really very little analysis of um, how that might be taking place, how those states 
are operationalizing that. And if we assume that the process of sectarianization, so by that I mean the process of making sect politically salient and divisive, if that process is at least partly a communicative one, then it of course makes sense that we need to look at the media. Um, and the mainstream media is particularly important in that because unlike some of the more fringe uh, religious channels, the mainstream media does still come and the channels I'm looking at do command uh, millions and in some cases tens of millions of viewers across the region. So um, even after losing viewers as a result of the Arab uprisings. Um, and then the, the third point is really method, method, methodological. We hear a lot about pan-Arab news channels, and especially, we have to say, Al Jazeera Arabic, promoting sectarian violence. But in practice, what does that mean? Um, is it even justified, given the smear campaigns against all the channels that have been launched by political opponents? And if it is, how do we measure it? So um, really, that has to do with the way that we understand hate speech and how it's defined. Uh, here, I distinguish between what I call manifest hate speech, which is direct calls to violence against particular groups or use of recognizably pejorative language, and more subtle indicators of uh, sectarian bias, which can be seen as inciting violence. So those were the main points that I'm interested in tackling in this paper. So um, just a word on, on what I what I did. The, the paper looks at the position of the channels within the general geopolitical context of the 2011 to 2017 period. Um, Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya have been broadcasting since 1996 and 2003, respectively. Al Jazeera famously sought to uh, challenge the pre-existing boundaries of Arab news reporting by giving a voice to the voiceless. Um, but really, both channels enjoyed much greater freedom than other state news outlets in reporting on regional politics. Uh, provided that they didn't directly impinge on uh, Saudi and Qatari um, interests. So what changed, I would say, in 2011 was that both Qatar and Saudi foreign policies became much more interventionist. And as a result, Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya became much more obvious tools of soft power in the region. Both countries have financially backed Sunni governments and rebel Sunni Islamist groups in Syria, although, as we know, not the same ones. Saudi has also attempted to support some more secular militant groups. Uh, Qatar has become strongly associated with supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and in fact, Al Jazeera's sympathies with the Muslim Brotherhood have arguably made it a protagonist in the uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt uh, and later Syria. So um, in fact, the position of Al Jazeera was what led to a breakaway group of journalists uh, founding al Mayadeen in uh, 2012, who were uh, much more sympathetic to uh, Iranian activities in the region and also Hezbollah and the Syrian government. al Mayadeen is based in Beirut, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so, and as, as is well documented, Iran has, been, uh, has a record of funding predominantly, though not exclusively, Shia militant groups in the region, including Iraq and Syria. Uh, so... The paper also gives a general overview of how the free channels have, uh, in general, over the course of the Arab uprisings, dealt with Islam and, more broadly, religious pl pluralism. Um, but thirdly, the most substantive part of the study is to uh, analyse the coverage pertaining to five incidents, so three in Iraq and uh, two in Syria, involving violence between sects, um, between 2013 and 2017, whether or not sect was actually the determining factor in that violence. So the incidents vary widely in terms of the types of violence that were involved and the nature of the perpetrators and the victims. Um, and they also differed widely in the degree of media attention they received. And the idea was to look at the accumulative coverage that uh, the channels gave to these event events rather than picking out isolated uh, reports. So you can read more about the case studies and the methodology in the report, and I hope you will. Um, but I examined close to 400 different features by the channels relating to those five events. And they were a combination of news bulletins, um, discussion programs, some standalone articles, and some opinion articles that had been transferred from uh, newspapers as well and put on the websites. Um, and please feel free to ask me about the methodology uh, in greater detail. So, um, and I started out by really looking 
perhaps naively, I started by looking for evidence of um, outright manifest hate speech and then went on and took a more inductive approach um, and looked for um, a range of framing devices that emerged in, in the cases that I was looking at. So the findings. Um, uh, the first point is that it really was impossible to divorce the political context from the idea of promoting violence against a particular sectarian group. Um, and in that sense, evidence of promoting sectarian violence was really a byproduct of political partisanship. Overwhelmingly, the programming of all of the channels, including Al Jazeera Arabic, which is strongly associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, promotes the concept of religious tolerance in abstract terms. And um, what I mean by that is that, um, so predominantly they host religious scholars who by and large prom promote moderation. They feature intellectuals who can discuss um, very eloquently the problem of uh, political sectarianism in the region. Um, Al-Mayadeen, for example, runs a regular discussion program called, called Bells of the, of the Mashrak, um, which it, um, it deals with uh, matters pertaining to Christians in the Middle East. Um, and certainly, if you look at Al Jazeera's editorial guidelines, they provide very clear instructions on how to accurately report on conflicts premised on religion, uh, how to avoid glorifying opinions of bigots or extremists. Um, but what I found was that the in a sense, the devil's in the detail in, in that um, evidence of partisanship or sectarian hostility became apparent in the way that they report on certain events. So um, the second finding was that clearly each channel does have a different editorial style um, and that affects who it gives coverage to. Uh, the events I analysed reinforced a common accusation or finding that um, Al Jazeera is more polemic than certainly than Al Arabiya it tends to give um, more of a direct voice um, more frequently to non-establishment figures, um, whereas Al Arabiya tends to stick more to the official sources um, and doesn't feature so many eyewitness accounts. Uh, in Iraq, one of the incidents I looked at was clashes between Sunni protesters and predominantly Shia members of the Iraqi military in the town of Hawija in 2013. Uh, in that case, both Al Arabiya and Al Jazeera covered, covered the event and they highlighted the legitimate claims of the Sunni protesters, but Al Jazeera featured interviews, more interviews um, and footage of the protesters than Al Arabiya. And I think that is quite typical of the, um, of the two channels. Um, the third point is that when it comes to evidence of incitement to violence, for the events that I studied, none of the channels' own presenters or reporters used manifest hate speech. Um, which would have constituted the clearest examples of inciting violence. And neither did they feature interviews with figures who openly espoused violence um, against our sex on air. So um, Al Jazeera ran more interviews and footage with figures associated with Sunni militant groups than the other channels. Al Mayadeen ran more interviews with figures associated with Shia militant groups than the other channels. Um, and in both cases, some of those figures were known to have promoted or conducted violence on a sectarian basis in other forums. So not on air, but in other forums. Um, fourthly, there were a few instances of guests sending covert or, or thinly disguised messages. Um, and just another example from the Hawija protests, uh, Al Jazeera repeatedly featured a quote by, um, from the Association for Muslim Scholars which claimed that Maliki, Nuri al-Maliki, who was the prime minister at the time, um, was uh, implementing the Wali Fakir, which is the Iranian system of theocratic governance, um, based on ethnic cleansing um, and sectarian cleansing. And Iraqi should realize that he declared war on them and would not stop unless repelled. So <laughs> um, I would say that's an implicit call to violence that um, was repeatedly featured on the website. And although it's ostensibly directed to all Iraqis, it's very well known that um, the Association for Muslim Scholars is a contentious Sunni organization um, and has links with more extremist militant groups. Um, fifthly, what we see most commonly with all of the channels is that they engaged in blame games and accentuated victimhood narratives, um, which are recognized strategies for justifying the need for violence 
against designated energy um, en enemies. So they, they lent credence to claims that the opposition or the other side was guilty of sectarian violence, whilst um, they played down or ignored claims or evidence that sides that they were sympathetic to were guilty of the same. Um, and they did that through a range of techniques by giving platform or a, uh, more of a platform to one side of the story of, uh, or repeating certain quotes or making selective use of estimated figures or ignoring ev evidence that human rights atrocities premised on sectarian discord had taken place. Um, so uh, the report, I feel, brings, brings this, like, the claims to life in the sense it, it, it brings a number of examples. So just want to mention uh, one or two, I guess. Um, one of the events I looked at was the Iraqi military uh, campaign to eject uh, Daesh, ISIL, from Fallujah in 2016. Um, Non-state Shia militias, the uh, popular mobilization forces, played a significant role in that campaign, despite international calls for them not to because of the previous record of uh, committing human rights abuses in a campaign in Tikrit. Um, so both Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya featured multiple reports suggesting that the militias were guilty of, um, of crimes against Sunni civilians in Fallujah, whereas Al Mayadeen um, ignored that and uh, had journalists um, embedded with the Iraqi military and with the militias and uh, featured a number of interviews with their spokesmen of the militias in which they emphasized their good conduct. Um, so that's just one example. And another example um, from Syria in 2013, um, I looked at a case where rebel forces um, raided a village in Hatla and Deir Zur. There were up to 65 Shia residents killed, including a number of unarmed civilians. Um, Shortly afterwards, one of the factions in the rebel forces, Jabhat al-Nasra, which is the Syrian branch of al-Qaeda, released a video online that showed, um, it was unverified, but it, it appeared to show members of Jabhat al-Nasra standing over some of the victims and, and making sectarian hateful remarks. Subsequently, Al Jazeera reported on the event, um, but made no mention of that video and essentially ignored the fact that potentially a, a human rights... Uh, atrocity based on sectarian discord had taken place. So there are just a few examples of the way that bias is conveyed. And essentially what I'm saying is that the channels main, <coughs> mainly neglect to tell the full story. And we can debate whether that amounts to inciting sectarian violence because certainly uh, there are plenty of English language media channels who do the same in the sense that they uh, tell their side of the story. Um, but what I would say here is that because the channels were keenly aware of the conflict charged environments in which they're operating, and because of the sponsorship, the, the nature of their sponsorship, I would argue that the intention was to encourage active support for one side uh, or the other of the conflicts. Um, so essentially there are my findings, and I guess the, the caveat is that it ran up to, I looked to, up till 2013 to 2017, and I guess that was kind of now it is being seen as like the peak of the, the geo-sectarian period um, in the course of the Arab uprisings. And since then, things have changed course a bit, and the geopolitics has shifted, and particularly since uh, the Saudi-led um, uh, blockade on Qatar, the, the discourse or uh, the apparent Sunni-Shia rivalry has shifted, and now what we're seeing is much more intra-sectarian um, Sunni factionalism. And that's also reflected in the channel's reporting. So I guess I don't think that undermines what I'm finding because essentially what I'm saying is that um, the main issue is fundamentally the problem of political partisanship. And in the cases that I've looked at, what this has amounted to is inciting sectarian violence. Um, so what, do, what does this mean in terms of policy recommendations? Um, I'd say, firstly, that uh, certainly the UK government recognises that media has the potential to be a pillar of governance and democracy um, and has provided, so between 2010 and 2015, the UK provided $173 million in development cooperation for media assistance internationally. And that's the fourth highest amongst OECD members. Um, 
But when it comes to the major pan-Arab satellite news channels, there's really limited... Uh, the, the UK government has limited influence over the content of any of them. And none of the channels in questions are actually... are currently licensed by Ofcom. So uh, Al Jazeera English is, but as we noted, it's, it's a different beast. <laughs> um, and Al Arabiya was, until last year, gave up its uh, broadcasting license. So that doesn't mean that people aren't watching them, but they're not... They're watching them online. Um, so... Uh, and when it comes to, in terms of intervention into Arab media in industries in the region, clearly that's uh, an area of sensitivity for many states. Of course, the UK can and should continue to promote ethical news practices, um, and it can do that through diplomatic ties, through NGOs and development agencies. For the pan-Arab channels, um, ethical news practices pertaining to sectarianism uh, could include conscious employment of ethnically and religiously diverse workforces, as well as minimum standards of training for working in con conflict zones um, and ethical guidelines for journalis journalism that relies heavily on citizen journalists, which has been the case in the course of the Arab uprisings. Um, by the same token, I think the UK should be and is wary of supporting plans by MENA governments to uh, implement or enhance laws against hate speech, because so, or certainly recognise that such laws would be unlikely to have any effect on the content of the pan-Arab channels that I've been looking at, A, because they're sponsored by political elites, and B, because the types of incitement to violence that I detected are not manifest hate speech and wouldn't be affected by, um, by legislation, I don't believe. Um, regarding the Arab media more generally, on the one hand leading Arab news outlets are, sponsor, are sponsored by political police, and that's, that is one problem. And the other one is that new forms of social media, which are potential outlets for challenging uh, political elites, have also been subject to disinformation uh, and fake news campaigns. So there's definitely an ongoing need for high-quality, independent and civic-oriented initiatives. And the main problem facing those emerging media outlets is... Um, is funding or how to become financially self-sustaining. And of course, that's a challenge for media outlets globally. Um, but arguably, the methods that Western media um, outlets have been using to generate new sources of funding, so things like crowdsourcing, um, microfinancing, uh, subsidy-based um, uh, payments for articles, wouldn't be feasible or even preferable in conflict or fragile societies like Iraq and Syria. Um, so clearly, successful media initiatives need to have innovative business plans as well as credible quality content. There isn't much value to funding projects that are, are going to end with the funding. Um, so I would say that investment into more creative financing, uh, financing and business models uh, is just as important as supporting um, gifted and uh, quality journalists. Uh, I'll leave it at that, I think. Thank you. Jessica, thank you very much for that very interesting and, and clear introduction. I, I just have a couple of questions, and then I'll, I'll open it up to to, um, to the audience here. Can you elaborate a bit more on the links between the, the different governments? I mean, you know, the, we're talking the Qatari, the Saudis, and then Mayadeen is, of course, a bit of a special mm -hmm. case. I just wonder whether you could say something about whether you whether it's possible to trace changes of reporting with changes of policy for example i mean i know you don't cover it exactly but the mm. the start of the qatar crisis in the summer of 2017 you clearly saw a very very different coverage of that mm. uh, from al jazeera and arabia to say nothing of course of the the miserable khashoggi affair yeah. which, which 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 came later yeah. can you say anything about those those connections a bit um i have this i have a suspicion that there might be a few people in this audience who who know some of the answers to these questions as well um so in terms of al jazeera uh, arabic um it was set up it's consistently been funded by the emir of qatar but uh it, he, by all accounts, um, hasn't, has rarely directly intervened, uh, as I understand it. 
the Al Jazeera uh, has had, did have a very uh, free hand. But as in other Arab countries, there is an unwritten agreement of self-censorship. And so uh, even Al Jazeera, which is much more adventurous than other uh, outlets, knows where the boundaries are and knows what, what lines not to cross. Um, and as I understand it, uh, with uh, the Arab uprisings, there have been cases in which Al Jazeera has been told to take a particular editorial line. But this has shifted, uh, the position has shifted. I think that um, Al Arabiya has always had much stricter control. Um, there's been, uh, so yes, it was initially owned by Middle East Broadcasting Center. Um, somebody remind me, the uh, Walid, uh, Walid bin Sultan um, yeah. is the um, director, and he um, was the main shareholder until uh, last year or 2000. Yeah, it was last year. Um, and after, in the light of the Saudi um, crackdown on corruption and uh, attempt to uh, control the media business, um, he signed over a majority shareholder to the Saudi government. So now it's, I think, 60-40 in favour of the Saudi government ownership of Al Arabiya. Um, I, I don't know... So now the control is more obviously direct. Mm. I believe that it has always been... There has always been a more direct editorial link between um, the the Saudi regime and, and Al Arabiya. It's more explicit now, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and Mayadeen, yes, it is a bit of a mystery. Um, I mean, it's not... It's, um, many... There has been no official declaration on who the funding comes from. And Mayadeen is in Beirut, and so somebody would like to enlighten me. <laughs> but as far as the information that I have, um, Mayadeen is in located in Beirut in an area where other... Um, where the other Iran-based... Um, uh, media outlets are also based, and um, it's a member of the Iranian Journalist Network, uh, as, as I understand it. Um, the so the director who is was Al Jazeera's um, head of bureau in Tehran, Hassan uh, bin uh, Jeddo, is um, he his wife is Iranian. He he lived in Iraq, Iran for many years. Uh, if you look up the public. Um, list of the company holdings, he, his wife and his son are the shareholders. That doesn't tell us who's behind the funding, but um, so that's what we know. But certainly, I mean, I would even say that the, from viewing Al-Mayadeen, they are most sympathetic to Hezbollah above even, or their position is in alignment with Hezbollah's in the sense that they're very much part of Lebanese society and that's reflected in the way that they report on um, interfaith dialogue like with Christianity as well and the uh, the links of Syrian society. And they've had fallouts with... I mean, there, there's speculation that it's funded by Syrian businessmen, but there have been uh, fallouts between Mayadine and the Syrian government. They've been banned from reporting in Syria at times. So, mm. yep, that's what I'd say. Thank you. OK, so, please, do you want to ask questions? Do you want to say who you are? Because we're all interested in each other. Thank you. Please. Myself? Yeah. Um, should I introduce myself first? Or? Yeah, yes, do you please. Yeah. Um, Hassan Hafid, I'm a teaching fellow in Middle East politics with a specialism in Gulf Studies at King's College. Um, I actually focused on, I worked with an LSE fellow here, Courtney Freer, on um, a current piece that we've, I'm, I'm, I'm plugging in now on our <laughs> publication. Feel free to advertise. Yeah, so we worked on a workshop on sectarianisation in the wake of the Arab uprisings. So that's just come out if you want to check it out with studies of ethnicity and nationalism. Anyway, um, uh, just two questions actually, or two part question, one observational, one methodological. I've just had a quick scan of, I know this sounds like a vibe now, but on page 17, um, I don't know if it's a, a central thesis or more a passing observation, but you note that at the top, within the scope of the case studies, None of the channel's presenters used manifest sectarian hate speech, which would constitute the clearest evidence of promoting sectarian violence. Now, if I recall, you did have a case with Faisal Barton, who's one of the key anchors for um, Al Jazeera's, one of Al Jazeera's Arabic prime shows, 
um, where he notes, he actually goes, and it was widely circulated on mm -hmm. social media, he actually goes on quite an explicit anti-Alawai mm -hmm. tirade mm -hmm. where he, he actually interrogates yeah. one of his guests who was a Syrian opposition representative. Why are you distracted by peripheral matters? Shouldn't you be maiming and bombing Alawai neighbourhoods? I just, just a, I guess I'm just using that example because it came yeah. to mind. Is that not tantamount yeah, so explicit? Yeah, no, absolutely, it is. And I talk about it on um, page... Sorry, my bad. But <laughs> it is mentioned. So um, what page is it on? Uh, but but you, do, you do single that out. I, I yeah, so, I mean, I, I mentioned there are... Um, oh, I feel like I have to come up with a page number now. Um, Perhaps it wasn't in that 2013, 17. Yeah, right. So, I mean, yes, I, I mentioned it. So, uh, yeah, page nine, top of page nine. So, um, so I list at the beginning, as part of my general overview, I, I note that Al Jazeera Arabic in particular has been subject to many claims of direct promotion of um, sectarian violence, and um, and that was one of them, and that's one of the most prominent ones. As you say, it's been circulated and recirculated on social media. Um, and I have to say also, and this is not in defence because it's indefensible, but um, in social media, if you look at the way that uh, YouTube has um, reproduced it, they uh, they show you quotes translated into English and not the not the whole context of the original Arabic. So, it, I mean, and this is one of the problems of looking at. Um, how things have been manipulated and reproduced um, in, in social media. Is, is yes, no, it is, it is. But um, so uh, he was technically acting as devil's advocate, technically. So uh, that doesn't come across in the in the way it's translated in the English. But um, however, so and I mentioned that, and I also mentioned there's um, one of the most common accusations against Al Jazeera is not just what they came out with in their own programs, but that uh, members of re reporters who have their own social media profiles, which are supposedly in a private capacity, are um, have made clearly sectarian remarks. And one of the in um, examples was. Um, from the Iraqi affairs editor Hamid Hadid, and I think he still is for Al Jazeera Arabic, um, in 2014, after the Iraqi army had uh, fled Mosul, after ISIL had taken Mosul, he said some. He said, "Well, you can read the quote in the in the report, but uh, very clearly sectarian." But the the kind of pretense is that. As a social media account, it was in a private capacity. But th I mean, these social media accounts—they they gain their popularity through their social media accounts. So I mean, it, it's a bit of a tenuous. So I make—I do recognise those. However, the approach that I took was very deliberately to choose a number of events and to look at a cumulative coverage from the channel, not just one individual, because it's true that not just Al Jazeera Arabic, but each of the channels has a number of polemic figures, and they tend to be the ones who draw the crowd. So Faisal Qasim is one of them. Um, uh, what's his name from Meadeen? He's a real kind of firebrand Algerian, sorry, Yahya. He has his own program on discussing religious affairs, and it's also very polemic. Uh, it, 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 it kind of denounces um, sectarianism, and yet it's, it's very divisive. So um, what I wanted to do was not take those individual events, but to look at the overall coverage of, um, of a particular event and to look at it successively in, as it emerged through news bulletins, through reports, um, through articles, because I think that gives a clearer, more accurate uh, uh, representation of the overall channel's um, position. Um, so, yeah. Can, can I just ask, yeah. just out of curiosity, more... Um, just, I'm just more curious about the rationale for discarding um, other media outlets, relatively smaller media outlets yeah. that are, I think, more religious-based. Yeah. So I'm thinking Al Mustaqillah, Wasal TV, which mm -hmm. is based in Egypt, yeah. which is heavily financed by Saudi Arabia, and maybe FedEx TV yeah. potentially, really. which are much more salient in their sectarian discourse and probably more tantamount to instrumentalizing. 
um, sectarian violence. I was just curious as to why you didn't look at yeah, this. Yeah, um, so I do briefly also discuss them, um, not Mastakal, but Fadak and Wessel, and Nas and Rahma as well. Um, so yes, there are a number of very much more obviously um, explicit, explicit web, um, outlets. Um, and yeah, page eight, <laughs> I mentioned this, but uh, the, the viewership, I mean, we don't have polling statistics on the viewership, but is much, much smaller than um, Al Jazeera by last public disclosure of uh, polling, it was still like 23 million, which is a huge drop from before the Arab uprisings, but it's still substantial. What was it before, do you know? Um, like in 2006, it was estimated as like 50 million in the region. Um, so I don't know globally. And now, uh, so 2014, 2013, 14, 23 million. So it's a huge, huge dip. Mm. I think, I suspect that it's probably recovered somewhat because it has kind of changed direction. People go back to, and also, I mean, you have to be wary about polling. In a lot of places, people are reticent about admitting to what they watch because it's illegal or because, um, you know, they're, they're afraid. Um, so it's, but the viewership figures, so Al Arabiya claims they have also tens of millions. Mayadeen, hard to tell. Most of, they don't broadcast, um, so most of their views are, they, they rely on digital platforms, um, but if it's anything to go by, they have like, um, I think it's 8 million likes on Facebook. So, I mean, maybe 8 million is not the biggest, but I, I chose that one because I chose Al Jazeera because it's the most popular, I chose Al, Al Harabiya because it's the second most popular, and I chose Al um, Mayadeen because of its uh, obvious affiliations to Iran. So, yes, they're the mainstream, and that's why I'm looking at them, because I think they're much more influential. So, we know that um, there are fringe extremist uh, channels, but what about the mainstream? Um, and maybe the fact that uh, incitement to violence is not manifest is what makes it much more dangerous, and that's kind of what motivates the study. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Ali you journalist. I was wondering, actually, uh, why you left out the NBC, because it's the first Arab broadcasting uh, in the Arab world. Yeah. And it started from London before it yeah. moved to Dubai, and it's still a very important broadcaster yeah. in the Arab world. Yeah. Uh, I know that Al Arabiya has gone more to the political side yeah. than the NBC, which more or less concentrated on the entertainment side. Yeah. But it still actually has uh, huge followers uh, worldwide. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it was a selection choice, that, uh, and essentially I just wanted to look at purely news producers. So NBC is mostly entertainment and. Um, it was just on on that basis. Um, no, I know, I know, and also there's now Hadath, like the the sister channel to Al Arabiya. So I I'm I'm aware there are also you know I've had people say why didn't you look at um, Sky News Arabia and why didn't you look at um, BBC Arabic? BBC Arabic. Um, it's true, but. I have to say to you, I have spent hundreds of hours going through this material, so there is a limit. Yeah, um, and I defend that. I think it's worthwhile because I, 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 this is a qualitative study, and that is the that is the merit in it. Because these days there are a lot of um, online. I mean, the data analysis tools are very sophisticated, and there are more and better and better ways of analyzing content. And I'm not trying to put that down, but what I'm trying to bring out here is that they don't pick up, they can't pick up this, if, if essentially one of the major sins is um, failing to disclose information, and if that does amount to inciting violence, and I think it does in this context, that's not gonna be picked up by, um, a, a kind of a word search digital um so yeah <laughs> yes please hello uh, i'm sepsen and i work on the internet organization um was wondering like uh, about the chinese like your choice of uh, um, chinese uh, 
that you've made, and uh, if you have looked also at Al Jazeera English, mm -hmm. on the, the different uh, editorial line yeah. and in uh, English, and um, if you have uh, noticed any differences. Yeah. I'm, so I wasn't part of this study essentially, like I didn't go systematically through in the same way that I did with those channels. As I mentioned, in a few places I kind of compared what Al Jazeera English had said about the same story, because there are a few cases in which there really wasn't much reporting for whatever reason. So I was looking at what other channels had said, I also looked at Al Alam and BBC Arabic um, to see what they'd said. And uh, yes, it is, it is very different, I mean it's... Uh, Again, Al Jazeera English is a tool of soft, power, of soft power for the Qatari government, but it is it is designed for an English-speaking audience or an, a, a Western audience, and that comes very clearly through. And the one case that I do mention in this report was regarding the again the case in Hatla, and this is back in 2013. But um, so this case of a massacre in this. Um, village that there were up to 65 Shia villagers were killed, including um, unarmed civilians. And subsequently, Jabhat al-Nasra released this video online showing them appearing to stand over the victims, like shouting sectarian abuse at them. Um, so both Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Jazeera English reported on that, but um, the way they reported on it was quite different. So Al Jazeera English acknowledged that this was part of an ongoing um, sectarian um, battle d discord and also made reference to the, um, the video. Al Jazeera kind of incorporated that, but into a, a in like basically two lines. Um, and, and it kind of, it was about the, the successes of the rebel movement in Derazur or the, the wider countryside. Um, so it was like a detail. It didn't mention anything about the video or the, the fact that that there was this sectarian element to it. And so again, it's, it's, it's in the omissions that, that, that the sins lie, I think. But yeah, that, so, um, and there are reports that do explicitly compare Al Jazeera English and Al Jazeera Arabic, and which have found that, yes, they are quite different. And I know that <laughs> you, you know that. So, so I mean, for, we were talking about this earlier, and it is striking. So, when the when the Qatar crisis erupted in the summer of 2017, I was asked to comment on it on Al Jazeera English, and I'd done many things for them in the past, and I did feel it was quite important to point out, in the light of the Saudi and other demands on Qatar. That the, I, I thought it was really important to point out that the demand for the closure of Al Jazeera, it was necessary to understand that there was a big difference between Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Jazeera English. And I go beyond that and say a lot of people who work for Al Jazeera English are professional journalists. Many of them, the majority of them, don't know Arabic and therefore don't understand what the sister channel is, uh, is broadcasting. And they were naturally outraged by uh, the Saudi demand. Uh, but to point out that difference, uh, it certainly didn't win me any, any fans. Uh, but it is a necessary distinction to make. It's a very, very big, uh, big difference, as, as Jessica said. I think that's a night I said earlier that, um, that I found that when I went, so I went to Doha and did some interviews including with some Al Jazeera Arabic, and who by and large are very nice guys, very reasonable people. But um, the, uh, my experience of dealing with Al Jazeera Central, I went through the, the public relations side of things, and I was kind of put onto the English, Al Jazeera English side. And I do think that it's used as a, a sort of way of deflecting. Um, I speak to these guys, you know, we know you're one of them kind of thing. Um, so yeah. Sorry, I was also about to ask if you have informed the three channels about your research and if you are going to yeah. send them. <coughs> um, yeah, actually, um, so Al Jazeera, and again, I have to say, Al Jazeera, they, on an individual basis, journalists were uh, wanted to be cooperative, but the um, they 
there are tighter controls over what they're allowed to say to outside inquiries. So, and they have a, a Al Jazeera studies department, which um, also fields researchers coming in asking questions. And I was, so I said I would send them my findings and I will. Um, and they have a, a, Al Jazeera has a collection of possibly thousands of academic studies on it. You know, mm -hmm. it's really, over the years, it's really racked them up. Um, so mine will add to the pile, I'm sure. Um, and Mayadine, uh, again, I didn't have any luck with, uh, I spoke to some Mayadine um, employees and I will send them copies. Um, Al Arabiya only spoke to former employees. Um, so yeah, could have been better in that respect, but um, I'm not sure who I would send that to, but very happy to send it to anyone who's interested, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that the uh, media war in the Middle East will carry on or will uh, <laughs> come down a bit? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think the prognosis is quite dire at the moment for the media, um, just in terms of, and I do think it comes back to this issue of funding. So if you don't receive political funding, where are you going to get your funding from? And advertising models there are ways of being more innovative, and I think like small uh, initiatives, um, emerging initiatives, there are ways of, of capitalizing more on, on advertising. Um, but I don't think that that really solves the fundamental problem is that people won't pay for content, and in, in kind of conflict situations, they shouldn't, the news has to be out there without them paying. So. Um, and I think, yeah, the battles between the networks are, yes, very definitely going to continue. Toby. Yeah, Toby Dodge, I teach here at SC. I think it's an excellent piece of work. Congratulations on the publication. And this is an unfair question, so I'll flag it up as well. Um, and you're my boss. So. <laughs> no pressure. If you, at, uh, if you look at the general work on sectarianisation, personified by, I suppose, what is now the definitive book by Hashemi and Postal, you get this reminiscent to some of us old enough in the room to remember the kind of false consciousness Marxian debate of the, the hidden hand of conspiracy uh, from the top feeding into a, a kind of misled or easily led and uh, a population that consume this thing and act under its orders. So I suppose against that background, I wonder, and I know devilishly difficult to do, but I wonder what your sense is of the influence of what you've identified, how it's being consumed, how it's shaping mass mobilization or popular opinion. Well, just mm -hmm. to flag up that I did say this was a difficult one. Yeah, it is. It's hugely difficult. Um, I mean, I, I, I weasel my way out of it saying that uh, I'm looking at incitement to violence doesn't necessarily mean no, violence yeah in terms of how you would determine that and I mean, also what your sense is of that okay my sense is still that al jazeera has enormous influence despite the fact that um it's lost a huge amount of credibility people are watching all kinds of other things as well i don't think that um that's disappeared. Um, and I don't think that the age of television is over either at all. Um, I think that the, this, the whole kind of like euphoric blip of social media has really, really kind of reinforced that there are certain standards that television um, is thought to adhere to that um, don't apply to social media. Um, then the large argument comes with satellite TV, a cause or an effect. Right. Okay. And I can. And I did think about that a lot. And I think that is a question that, you, and and I think that it comes down to individual channels. I do think that Al Jazeera, because of um, it, has very clear links with the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, in fact, there's a book by Sama Jaribi, Fridays of Rage, on exactly this. Like Al Jazeera became a protagonist in the Arab uprising. So it wasn't just reflecting, it wasn't just telling the news and reflecting the climate. It was pushing the events in the direction that they went. So again, I would say that's a more of a political thing than, a, than an evidence of a 
extremist, religious extremist adherence. But I, yes, I think that, that um, in some cases, yes, they do. For the most part, no, the, the media reflects the wider rhetoric, but and now, and now it's an echo chamber. It's so moved on into a kind of post-sectarian programming. Yeah, yeah. Cause or effect? Uh, accommodation, I think it's one of those, you know, constitutive relations that, um, yeah, very, very definitely. But I mean, in terms of, yeah, so just to go back to how would you measure it? I mean, there, there are ways that you can think of trying to measure the effects of how these channels are impacting on uh, sectarian violence, and you can look at how um, the websites um, used to have much more interactive, um, you could read all the comments that they produced, and so you could see how particular articles met with particular responses. Now that's been controlled a lot more, so it's much more difficult to see that. And other than that, just like by doing, I, and I think there's a huge value in this, and I really don't think it has been done that much, is doing a much more um, thorough, audience research like so there are a lot of assumptions about sectarianism sectarian rhetoric and what it produces in order to back that up we need to take specific examples like the ones that I've identified and devise that in a kind of research that you put to audience um, groups and say well, you know what does it what is the effect of that what do you think when when you read this and I don't think that really has been done and I think it would be helpful uh, yeah please yeah, uh, Ghazi. I'm an assistant professor in media and communication here at LSE. Um, I, first of all, congratulations. It's a great uh, report. Um, I wanted to ask about the distinction between Shia and Alawis um, and whether that um, also was something you looked at, mm -hmm. particularly because at times they are conflated in popular mm -hmm. discourse, but from a, a Sunni like religious point of view, Alawis are seen as kind of like further away from the orthodox yeah even orthodox worse Islam, mm -hmm. and there might be more like sectarianism in the literal sense the words yeah i mean i think that's true in just the, the rhetoric that you find like salafi jihadis using against alawis that they have been particular targets and um i mean i think i don't conflate so i'm looking at i i take the categories that have been pre-identified of a struggle between Sunni and Shia. And Shia, you're right, like, I mean, the, the Alawis, a lot of, um, are considered by Orthodox Shia even as being kind of unorthodox or deviant even, um, and by some, some groups as being unbelievers. So um, I don't really bring out that distinction. This, this report I kind of take as given that they are part of the Shia bloc um, and that there's discrimination against them. And it wasn't something looking at these reports. So... The Hatla case, actually, the victims were um, were twelve or Shia. Um, obviously, the majority are Alawi in, in Syria. But um, I didn't. The reports I looked at didn't really bring out that kind of distinction between between them. Can I, can I just add to that point? Please, sorry please. about orthodox well, Shia orthodox position on Alawi. So you, you are correct that for a long time both Tom and Nejef, which are the main houses or the seminaries uh, did actually regard Alawis as, as acquiring heretical views. It was only until Musa Sadr, the Lebanese cleric behind the civil war, um, took a much more eclectic approach and this emphasis on rapprochement and tafara to bring the Alawites in. So it was only until the 70s that we actually found an acceptability, at least in the religious or theological discourse of Shias and Alawites. Thank you. More questions? Sure. Sure. <laughs> they suffered enough. <laughs> I, I, I'll make a, a comment while somebody else comes up with a question. Um, Are we I, just... Oh, yeah, okay. Well, Ali, please. Uh, I was actually wondering, because of the Al Jazeera has picked up all the professionals who actually used to work with the BBC before, Hmm. And they doubled their salaries, and they went hmm. obviously to Doha with the tax fee and all that. And they actually got the, the best professionals in in the, hmm. in the media. Yeah. Uh, whereas the, uh, the Al Arabiya, hmm. they just picked up what's left over, more hmm. or less. Yeah. So from the professional point of view, the Al Jazeera mm -hmm. is still very professional in their reporting, in also in their output. So there is a huge difference yeah. between the two, and that's why people. They so are still it. stick sticking with the uh, with Al Jazeera rather than moving on.
I mean, I, yeah, I think that's a very accurate point. And I, um, I think like, so Al Jazeera has its own training school, um, and uh, people go there and aspire to work for Al Jazeera, and they might go on to work somewhere else. But it's it's got its own, um, it's it's an establishment, and it, and it also has its own uh, department of human rights and ethics. And so, I mean, it sets standards of its own and defies, and that's part of the whole Al Jazeera model. It defies, it rejects the kind of Western, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Protectionist, um, well, the, the, the kind of hegemonic Western view of things and, and comes up with its own alternative. And I think that yes, is still very appealing to people who, even people who don't, even people who don't agree with the way that it's covered the uprising still find that it's, it's, got, it's got insights to offer. But again, I mean, just the comment that I was thinking of was, I mean, I know, because I've spent a lot of time as a, as a, as a journalist, I come across lots of Arabic-speaking journalists who work for these channels and others. And I am very aware that people are perfectly capable in private conversation of making a distinction between the line followed by the, the editorial line of that organization and their own private views. I mean, you know, there's a lot of eyeball rolling uh, about the way things are presented, and they're perfectly mm. professional. It's a bit like you with the garden. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Fair comment. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually wondering why didn't you mention North Africa at all, and yet <laughs> North Africa has more in terms of population than the <laughs> I think you're Moroccan, right? Yes, I yes, am. I'm oh, dear. I feel like, oh, I feel just, like I've just. let you down. I didn't cover NBC. <laughs> I didn't cover North Africa. But, yeah, I mean, I, get, I didn't actually... So the project that we're working on that this is uh, situated in is looking at, um, at, at, at well, essentially Syria and Iraq, um, the conflict research program. This is looking at regional drivers of conflict in Syria and Iraq. So that was, that was why, essentially... <laughs> You were mentioning, rightfully so, about funding as well, about, in terms of going forward, at least. Um, do you think the owner should be on contextualising a lot of these observations? Because I think you alluded to it anyway. You think about Al Jazeera's uh, discourse and its coverage pre and post Saudi blockade, mm -hmm. it's markedly different. Mm -hmm. It's done at 180 degrees on the conflict in Yemen, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, mm -hmm. I don't know if you share my kind of wariness to over-inflate the, some of these observations as if, as if they're kind of static and, mm -hmm. and aren't subject to... Yeah, no, and I think that's very valid. Like, I mean, it's, it's been very apparent that things have changed. And in sectarianism, like, you know, even this time, let's say two years ago, the topic of sectarianism was all the rage, and it's not anymore. And... Um, and I think it's true. It's that, like the debate has moved on. That the the channels, um, maybe not so much um, Al Arabiya actually, because Saudi is still totally paranoid about Iran, and that comes across still. So it used to be all about Iran and uh, spreading well, Shiism. Yeah, I think. It, I mean, I think it has changed. I mean, it's no longer loyal to the Saudi position in in Yemen. Um, or in Bahrain, um, and I, uh, yes, it's taken its own line. But I mean, I don't think that detracts from the findings in that what I'm saying is that, that sectarian rhetoric has been a product of political partisanship, and it's been instrumentalized. It was instrumentalized during that period. Now there are different discourses that are being instrumentalized, and that doesn't mean that... Uh, so the issue is the strength of... Uh, the stranglehold of the political elites and the way that that is being used, and and so I hope that message, well, that message is still relevant in the in the post two thousand seventeen period. Yeah, please. I'm from Remember, I'm a senior policy fellow. I was wondering if there was a distinction between straight news reporting and more editorialising magazines like the Virgin as well. And in terms of how things are presented, mm -hmm. and also if you have a sense of, again, it's an unfair question, but the degree to which 
the omissions, the sins of omission, are clearly decided. It is a decision not to report something. Or if it is questions of access, for example, so yeah. people won't talk to Al Jazeera because they know that Al Jazeera mm -hmm. represents such and such. Yeah. Or what one might call more sort of innocent prejudice, so in the sense that people just aren't seeing things because mm -hmm. they themselves are living in a bubble where they're not seeing the other side. Yeah. What are the sort of deliberateness of, of the choice? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think they're self-reinforcing, yeah. So they, one side has a reputation, that means that they become more and more associated with um, one side of the story, and then the other side of the story eventually decides they don't even want to talk to them. So, And Al Jazeera really found... <coughs> so for a long time, it was still... Like, when in Syria the protests broke out, for the first, like, maybe even like the first eight months or so, they would still have um, Syrian government representatives interviewed. Um, and then it kind of dwindled and they'd get, and then the side, but because Al Jazeera is so preoccupied with um, the opinion and the other opinion is part of their policy is to always have somebody on one side of the story and somebody on the other side of the story in terms of a debate. So that doesn't reflect in the way that they necessarily report on issues, but if they're interviewing people, they always try and have people from each side of the story. But then that that does impact on the quality because then they end up having um, people who are more and more remotely connected and shouldn't be given a platform anyway. And that was the case in that uh, the 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 Faisal al-Qasim, that, that episode of Alitja al-Muraqas, where there was this uh, debate between the, um, it was he was an Alawite, but I, you know actually I'm not entirely. I think he was based in London, um, and then a Syrian rebel opposition supporter. And the debate, the debate was between him, but really they were tenuous. Like you know, giving a platform to people is an, an ethical decision of journalism. So you might say, well, it's not incitement to violence, but at very least it's unethical, but they choose to promote voices that shouldn't be promoted. You know, that, that there has to be a decision on, on that. But so to return to your point, yes, definitely there are cases where it's issue of access as well. Um, in the campaign of Fallujah, um, Merdine had very, very good access to the Iraqi army. It was embedded with the Iraqi army and with um, the Shia militias. So, of course, they were interviewing them. And they had that because they were known to be sympathetic to the Iraqi government. So they got great coverage and they got all these interviews of um, militia leaders saying, oh, no, we're not committing any human rights atrocities. And they didn't get any coverage, which Al Jazeera did, of people inside um, Fallujah complaining about rights abuses. So it is kind of self-reinforcing, but still the narrative is produced one way or another. Like the, yeah. <laughs> Please, so, so. Yeah, if um, you also uh, mentioned you have worked on the audience, like uh, obviously you've done a lot of content analysis, uh, looking at the material on the TVs. And uh, have you uh, spoken to um, audience of this channel, or uh, some focus groups, and who are mm. watching uh, that uh, uh, profiles or um, uh, looking at gender also? Like, uh, who are the like, yeah. audience of this channel? So, in a, in a short answer, no, I didn't. I mean, this is this paper was a content analysis piece. Um, that would be a whole different project. Uh, I have, in the course of my interviews, I did speak to um, a number of NGOs in, in Lebanon who, who run that kind of analysis, like content analysis with audiences, and I think it's very valuable, but, um, but no, it's not something I, I did here. Can you say a little bit about uh, Cara Daoud, who's quite <laughs> an important figure, I think, in all this? Yes, well, he was. Um, because, precisely because of the fact that he gave one of his most famous anti-sectarian speeches to Al Arabiya, not Al Jazeera, with whom he's associated. So yeah. he's yeah. So he's uh, Karnawi's um, Muslim Brotherhood ideologue. He was um, one of the stars of Al Jazeera for years, and he had a regular show, Al Sharia Al Hayat, which is a religious. A chat show, and he would talk about um, an issue or a couple of issues every week, and he'd have people calling in um, from the audience asking questions about, you know, I I've got this moral dilemma. Does Islam permit me to do this? And um, 
etc. And and um, he was associated. He was kind of quite erratic. I mean, I talk about him in the past tense. He's still alive, and but he he's he doesn't appear so publicly mm. so often. But um, he, by and large, was one of the figures associated with promoting inter intersectarian dialogue and um, cooperation between Sunni and Shia. Um, and this is why I say, like, you have to distinguish between abstract notions of religious tolerance and the reality of how people respond. Because it was in 2013 when um, Hezbollah became involved in the Syrian civil war um, that that was what sparked his um, anti-sectarian, anti-Shia tirade, essentially. Um, and he uh, came out with saying that the Shia weren't weren't really Muslims. Um, and he actually, yes, yeah, so he said that he he said that publicly on an interview on Al Arabiya, but he was associated mostly with Al Jazeera and had this regular show, which was cut quite soon afterwards. Um, one assumes in connection with that. I think there was some pressure put on um, Al Jazeera to cut that show, um, and he hasn't been. I mean, he's still been interviewed and quoted subsequently, but he's lost. And I did. I, I also think that did change the kind of character of the channel because he really was one of the foremost voices mm. on Al Jazeera, and, and I think that was the most popular show. Mm. Mm. Um, so yeah. More questions? We can just... <laughs> well, we can, have a, we can all go off and have a drink if there's no more questions <laughs> in that case. But Jessica, thank you very much for that. It was very, very interesting. And I urge you all to take a copy of the paper. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.